Does God hear us better when we fast? That was one of the many questions texted or emailed to me this week. And we're now a few weeks into this practice of fasting. Uh, just how you doing? Been all right? Some of you? Others of you are still skeptical. You're like, I, I, you know, you still hear those echoes of a legalistic or a moralistic kind of religious framework that you're trying to heal from. Uh, or some of you get bogged down by the rules. Um, some of the other text messages and emails I got had to do with, can I do this? Can I eat that? Uh, does this count? And I was thinking that the last one, like, count to who? Like, God's not a bookkeeper. Uh, and while I get the heart behind wanting to take all of that seriously, I would encourage you, you know, to lean into grace. Uh, G, you know, God is about breaking the yoke of oppression, about bringing freedom. And the same Jesus who says, when you fast, is the Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a hard bunch of things to do. No, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is light so in all that if you don't hear in all of this talk about fasting an invitation from Jesus to be with him to be shaped like him for the sake of others then just let it all go let go of the weight relax fasting is a practice for freedom and there are a lot of other practices. But some of you might be experiencing a different kind of weight. Um, not one bound by obligation or bound by oughts, but a, a deeper awareness of what's going on inside of you. Uh, some of you, uh, you know, has brought you maybe to a place of listening and you're curious about this next season of life. You don't feel necessarily like you're experiencing a ton of fruit yet, but you can tell that the soil is getting tilled up and you're, you're hopeful about what God is going to bring in this next season. Uh, some of you have told me that's been your experience. Others of you are experiencing the weight of grief, though. Fasting has revealed those things in you that control you, and it's this heightened sense of maybe the disordered desires within you, or even maybe of the wrongs done to you, the things that have left wounds that keep you from being free. Or, if none of those things, you've become so aware of the conditions around you, the systems and structures in which sin tries to hide, that make it hard for you or for anyone to choose what is good. Sin bears its marks and it gets classified in all kinds of ways. Its problems are as wide as mass graves in Israel, but as personal as insecurity, anxiety, and the struggle to simply be comfortable in your own skin. And even though the word sin, for some of you, that has all kinds of emotional weight attached to it. Your limbic system seizes up just at the, at the mention of the word. Whether that's because of church wounds or a sense of shame or, or failure. But far from being a kind of finger-wagging moralism levied by dime store prophets toward the masses, the biblical description of sin, bye, Salem, <laughs> is actually is actually far more diagnostic in nature. It's, it's going to a doctor and finding out there's actually a name for what ails you. And the problem with like pretending that you're well is that you miss out on all the healing when you've got all the symptoms. So 
maybe fasting has brought all that stuff to the surface and, and it's just making you grieve. And the thing is, that is an important step. We live in a broken world. There is always space to repent and grieve. And it also happens to be the case that so much of the sin and brokenness in our world bears itself out in the relationship to food, about who has access to it and who does not. Here's some quick facts about hunger and poverty. There are around 2 billion people in the world who live in poverty and 783 million who experience daily food insecurity, who live on less than $2.16 US per day. And while that is way better than it was a couple dozen years ago, each of those persons bears the image of God. In the United States, 20 million people live in what the Census Bureau calls deep poverty. 22,000 people die every single day related to poverty, much of which is due to the generational legacy of racialized injustice with indigenous, black, and Hispanic persons living at nearly double the rates of poverty and food insecurity as white persons. The untold story about much of this poverty, though, is that the ones who are affected most by it are children. There is an urgent call put out by Taffany and our mission team to provide uh, one of our ministry partners peace prep with snacks. This is not a coordinated effort. This was not manipulation on a week when we're talking about the relationship between food and justice. It just so happens that we got communication this week that people in our own city are in need of food. And that need is directly tied to the legacy of racial injustice and generational poverty in our own city that weigh heavier than gravity upon the human soul. USDA reports that 49 million people in the United States turned to food assistance programs in the year 2022. One out of every six children in this country. And that's just a staggering number. And at the same time, as all of that need around us, the average family in the U.S. throws away $1,500 worth of groceries every single year. Uh, that translates into 40% of our domestic food supply going straight into the garbage, somewhere between uh, 1.2 and 1.3 billion tons of food around the world go wasted. 17% of it doesn't even make it from the harvest to the store. So my point is that there are a lot of people in the world who have no choice but to go hungry. There are millions more who have abundance and they don't know what to do with it. And so is there a faithful practice that helps us deal with this disparity? Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about fasting as a practice of the interior life to, uh, to offer ourselves to God, to enlist the body in the battle against the flesh, but this morning, we're going to move to the external about how fasting shapes our relationship to the world around us. One of my favorite spiritual writers, Robert Mulholland, uh, has this saying about what is spiritual formation for. And he says this, spiritual formation is the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And then that last part is key. It's not just about us. God wants to use us and, and move in his spirit through us to reshape the world. And so a third 
aspect of fasting is that it shapes us for others. It, it joins our bodies to our prayers in moving toward the poor, the marginalized, and the hungry. So with that, if you would grab your Bibles or a worship guide and turn to Isaiah chapter 58. These are the prophet's words to a people in exile. And through him, God asks a question. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And God responds, yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Are you sure? In his book, The Holy Longing, uh, the Catholic spiritual writer Ronald Rollheiser tells a story about a town built just beyond the bend of a very large river. And one day in this town, some children were outside playing, and they discovered three bodies floating down the river. The children ran back into the town. They told the people what was going on, and the townspeople responded quickly. They went out. They fished out the bodies. One of them was dead, and so they buried it. Another was uh, sick, and so they, they tended to him, put him in the hospital, and the third was a child. And so they took the child in, uh, provided for its education, for its nurture. Well, the very next day, several new bodies were found floating in the river, and the town responded in the exact same way, burying the dead, tending the sick, uh, caring for the orphans. This went on for several years. Each day, new bodies came down the river. It became to be part of the daily routine. And the, new, and the town grew really sophisticated in its way of handling all of these, these, these bodies that were coming down the river. New hospitals were built. Uh, many quit their jobs to dedicate themselves toward caring for the, the children who were, were coming into the town. Land and labor were donated for a graveyard. Engineers put their minds to work in developing new and efficient systems for retrieving bodies out of the water. And over, the time, over time, the, the town became quite proud and, and it became a marker of, of their own self-identity about how generous and how adaptable they were in meeting this need. And yet... Mulholland goes on to conclude the story. In all those years, despite all of their ingenuity and their, their great compassion, which is so noble, no one ever went up beyond the bend in the river to find out why. Why was there daily this new stream of bodies coming in? And the point of his parable is to highlight the difference between 
uh, inward acts of righteousness and charity, which are, are so noble. And the presence of what the writers of the Bible call shalom, which is this state of mutual flourishing in which internal righteousness it pours itself out in external works of righteousness and justice. And it raises the question, what if the righteousness of our city, of our community, has more to do with how the most vulnerable in our city and our community are doing while we're alive than it has to do with how often we pray and fast and read the Bible and come to worship on Sunday? That's the question Isaiah poses. Living in exile, Isaiah is addressing a people who long for a, a deep relationship with God. And the prophet Zechariah in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, tells us that the people fasted on the fifth and seventh month of every year for 70 years following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And God asks this question, comes back to the people at the very end, was it really for me that you fasted? Did you long for me, or did you just long what I can do for you? Put differently, is pursuing God, if it meant abandoning the life that you think you want, would God be enough? And Isaiah is addressing a people who think that in fasting and in humbling themselves, they're doing all the right things, and actually it's God who's not keeping faith. They say day after day they seek me to, and they delight to know my ways. These people were noted for their, for their piety, for their intense spirituality. And yet for all of these prayers and all these activities, they disregarded God's desire for a just community. They were not shaped by that vision. And Isaiah says, if you want to pray to the God who loves justice, then you also must love and embody justice. So Isaiah criticizes their self-centered, instrumental view of fasting, this kind of idea that, well, if I do this, if I engage in this spiritual activity, if I fast, then God might do this for me. And what they wanted was just a slightly better version of the status quo. Rather than fasting as a faithful response to the discontinuity between what God sees and how the people are actually living, for God, the reason for the fast is the condition of the poor. It's the presence of injustice in the community. So Isaiah takes it one step further and says that fasting is a response toward God's response toward the poor. The great Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel describes the prophetic role as one of pathos, of, of embodying in himself God's posture, God's heart. He writes this, God's concern for justice grows out of his compassion for man. The prophets do not speak of a divine relationship to an absolute principle or an idea called justice. They are intoxicated with the awareness of God's relationship to his people. Above all, the prophets remind us of the moral state of a people. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. Fasting, then, is a faithful response toward and with the poor, embodying God's, God's heart toward the poor. It is experiencing poverty within our own bodies as they stand against the injustice in the world. And Isaiah, Isaiah he's, he's pleading with Israel to understand that while 
Fasting involves individual spirituality. It has to transcend individual spirituality. Look again at verse four. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Raises a very, very hard question. Is there a type of prayer that God does not hear? And Jesus actually weighs in on this question by telling a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, in his prayer, talks about all of his, his moral status, all the things that he has achieved. He talks about how he has tithed, how he has, has fasted, how he has uh, obeyed the, the Torah and gone uh, to the, the, the temple every Saturday. Whereas the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus says it is the one who humbled himself, not the proud, who goes home justified. Verse five, is this the kind of fast that I have chosen, God asks, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Meaning fasting is not only about our personal righteousness, it is an act of faith and hope undertaken for the sake of others. We fast not only to offer ourselves to God, to join our body in the fight against the flesh, to aid in our prayers, there is more to it. Those are all good, those are all faithful responses, but there is more to it. Verse six, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Notice the motivation to undertake this practice is to connect with God's heart, with God's vision of flourishing for the world, to be part of that flourishing, what the writers of the Old Testament call shalom, the, 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 the presence of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that includes a number of things, undoing injustice, releasing the oppressed, feeding the hungry, providing sanctuary for the homeless, meeting the practical needs of those around you. There's a whole other dimension to fasting that has less to do with our inward righteousness and has everything to do with others. There's a social dimension that is impossible to separate out from external acts of justice. I've mentioned this a few times, but it seems like a good space for a reminder now, that the Hebrew word for both internal personal righteousness and outward external justice is the same word, sadak. So that means that any time you read the Old Testament in English and you see a word uh, righteousness or you see a word justice, you can use them interchangeably. To be just is to be righteous. A righteous city is a just city. In, a, in the biblical vision, you cannot separate out inward piety from external works of, of mercy and justice. To care for the poor is to be righteous. To be righteous is to care for the poor. And if it is genuine, fasting builds community because it is a response to the lack of justice within a community. In his commentary on this passage, St. Augustine, one of the towering minds of the church, writes this, Break your bread for those who are hungry, said Isaiah. Do not believe that fasting suffices. 
Fasting chastises you, but it does not refresh the other. Your privations shall bear fruit if you give generously to another. Do you wish your prayer to reach God? Give it two wings, fasting and almsgiving. Such a lovely image, prayer like a bird. It takes flight when the internal postures of the heart match the external actions of the heart. And and he gives these two examples, prayer and almsgiving. In the biblical vision, they always go together. Internal righteousness, external justice and mercy. The pastor John Mark Comer points out that in the language of the church, Almsgiving was shorthand for works of mercy, this combination of generosity and service and justice. And in the biblical imagination, almsgiving was just as tied to fasting as prayer was. You can think of fasting without prayer and you're missing a whole dimension of it. You can fast without being generous and then others don't benefit from it. Followers of Jesus have connected fasting and prayer and almsgiving from the very beginning. In fact, in Jesus' only conversation about spiritual practices, the ones that he explicitly puts together are fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And each time he says, when you fast, when you give, when you pray. There was an early second century Christian writing called The Shepherd of Hermas, Uh, It gives advice on both fasting and how to convert that fast into action. And it talks about doing this on the two days that the early church would reserve for fasting, on Wednesdays and on Fridays. Now, this is not an authoritative text. It was one of those that there were a lot of early Christian writings that were considered good, that were considered, you know, wise and in that category of wisdom. It's not scripture, but it falls into that general idea of like, this is what early Christians did. This is what was normative. This is how they practice. And after refraining from food, it instructs this. On the day in which you fast, you will reckon up the price of the dishes of that day that which you might have eaten but did not. And you will give it to a widow or an orphan or some person in want. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his own soul and pray to the Lord for you. And no, this is not like putting some people on, on, a, on a status trip of like those who are, you know, the ones who give are magnanimous. No, it's saying that those who give are just as in need of grace, just as in need of prayer as those who are in need of food. Cappadocian father Gregory of Nyssa wrote this, Give to the hungry what you deny your own appetite. And Caesarius of Arla added this, Let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches on the poor so that we might not store up in our purses what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. And what they're getting at is in chorus, is that there is no division between loving the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Fasting, when combined with generosity, is a way to love God and a way to love the poor at the same time. And this kind of fasting does three things. One, it helps us to stand in solidarity with the hungry. Gathering around a table uh, with those you love is one of the principal ways that we build community. It it brings people together. It cultivates a sense of of oneness when we share a meal. And in the same way, intentionally going without food by choice 
can help us grow in compassion, can help us to affirm the dignity and the humanity of those whose hunger is not by choice. The denial of your stomach does something to your heart. It places you emotionally in the place of those for whom hunger is an everyday lived experience. It allows you to see a brother or sister in need, not as an object of pity, but as a fellow image bearer. I know a number of families who eat rice and beans once a week as a way of being in solidarity with the poor. It's the most common meal in the world. Fasting or taking on this restricted diet helps us locate ourselves with others. Second, fasting like this helps us share what we have. When we give up our food or money um, that we would spend on food, we can then repurpose that money to be in service to others. We can give up time that we would have spent shopping or, or preparing food to be in service to others. Fasting, when combined with almsgiving, awakens new life within us. I was struck by something I read this week by uh, uh, a Catholic nun named Sister Macrina Vaderkare. She writes this, In fasting, we experience new hungers. We hunger and thirst for justice, for goodness and holiness. We, we hunger for what is right. We hunger to be saints. Most of us are not nearly hungry enough for the things that really matter. Amen to that. That's why it's so good for us to feel a gnawing in our guts. We remember why we are fasting. We remember all the peoples of the world who have no choice but go to bed hungry. We remember how we waste and squander the goods of this world. We remember what poor stewards of the earth we have been. We remember that each of us is called to be bread for the world. Our lives are meant to nourish Fasting can lead us to the core of our being and make us more nourishing for others. What do we do in the face of such grave injustice in our world? I know like, it's always uh, one of those dicey propositions for a pastor to give you a bunch of stats at the beginning of a service. It's like, oh, great. Well, now I, what am I supposed to do with that, pastor? Well, your call is not to end world hunger but you can feed a hungry neighbor. You can give the 10 or $15 that you would have spent on lunch one day. Give it to one of our mission partners. Give it to a food pantry. You can buy groceries for somebody who needs them. You can give out of your abundance to those in need. Third, fasting allows us to stand against injustice. In the summer of 1994, the Ohio Congressman Anthony Hall fasted for 22 days as a means of drawing attention to the plight of the hungry in our nation. Now, this was not a hunger strike against God, trying to get God to do something. This was a hunger strike as part of his faith in relationship with God as a means to stand with God in solidarity with the poor. And he summoned Christians to join him during Holy Week to, quote, raise the consciousness of the nation I want people to realize there are 25 million Americans that are hungry who go to food banks and soup kitchens that are under the age of 17. His fasts, like those of Martin Luther King Jr., like those of Oscar Romero, are a response to a sacred moment worthy of repentance, the injustice and poverty in our nation and in our world. And fasting is a way for us, for the well-fed, to 
align themselves with the hungry in the way that Jesus did for us. And this is not about social systems. This is not about politics. This is not about power. This is about what, the, what Paul calls the spiritual substructure of reality. He describes them as the, the spiritual forces of evil, the authorities, the powers of darkness that animate behind and beneath the powers of this world. The fast that Isaiah has in mind is a renewed posture, is a stand against injustice. And one of the most basic markers in a church, a church that is meant to be the new reality the new people, an embodiment of the shalom of the kingdom that God wants for the whole world. A marker of a healthy church like that is that it should not be possible for others to go without their basic needs being met as long as there are resources in the whole. Acts reminds us of what the witness of the early church was like. There were no needy persons among them. And friends, and while I know that all this was heavy, funniest thing, one of the, one of the heaviest sermons to, to preach, one of the easiest to write because there's really no way around this text other than what I've talked about here. No other plausible reading. If you've got one, let me know you're wrong. <laughs> but the thing is the prophet does not end with judgment. He doesn't end with cutting the people off. He ends with a word of hope. He stings the conscience in order to heal the soul. There is a promise that God gives toward the people who pursue him and his vision of flourishing. And the promise is that he will be with those people. Verse 8 goes like this. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. Again, righteousness, internal, external. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. And you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. As in Isaiah's world, as with ours, nothing is automatic. Fasting is not like a genie bottle that you rub to get God to do something. But it's a way to connect with God and a way to connect with God's vision for the world when internal righteousness is matched with external justice and mercy, we may experience a renewal far beyond anything we could imagine. Renewal is God's vision. God is the architect. We find Jesus in those places where renewal is needed the most. On earth, as in heaven, that's always been the prayer of the church. If we come to God with God's priorities in mind and not simply our own, if we surrender our whole person, body, spirit, and mind toward that vision, the promise is he is near. Does God hear us better when we fast? That was the question that was texted to me this week. I don't think so. Justice and mercy. I guarantee you that is a prayer that God hears. So let us pray. Almighty God, we along with all creation await the renewal of all things. And we wait in hope 
We wait in the knowledge that a renewed creation needs a renewed people. And so we ask that you would give us a posture that is ever more open to your spirit's transformation, that we may be shaped to be like you for the sake of the world around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.